Welcome to Epidemiology Now. My name is Eunyoung Lee. Epidemiology Now is a podcast prepared for students in Health 323 Introduction to Epidemiology at Queen's University. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to Health 323 class. Today the topic is Critical Epidemiology and Health Studies. So within this topic, what we're going to do is I'm going to, um, I'm inviting scholars um, in health promotion and critical health studies field to give us uh, some, some examples of how the ways that we can incorporate critical health studies into epidemiology. So today uh, we have Dr. Sophie Chen. Dr. Sophie Chen recently graduated from our program from SKHS. She recently obtained her PhD degree and now she's a research associate at Kingston General Hospital. So we'll welcome you, Dr. Sophie Chen, um, and thanks for Thank thanks you. for coming in to talk. Um, so yeah, so do you want to give our students an, a brief intro about yourself? Sure. I'm really super glad to be in this interview today. Um, my name is Sophie Chan, and. Um, a little bit about myself, other than my academic background. I'm a second generation Canadian. I was born and raised in Scarborough, um, but I have two refugee parents who came here from China um, in the late 80s. And um, yeah, I always introduce myself with this statement first because I feel like it's really important for me to always carry a piece of home with me. Um, a little bit more about myself. I really like watching TV. Like I'm obsessed with TV and that's what I do in my free time now that I've done my PhD. And um, I really like to learn languages. So recently what I've been trying to do is I've been trying to learn Chinese again and reconnect with my roots because um, a lot of kids growing up like me, second generation, oh sorry, first, second generation Canadian, don't know how to read or write. Chinese so that's what I've been doing lately sounds very nerdy but uh I think I'm just like a life like lifelong learner so mm -hmm. that's a little bit about myself that's good thanks Sophie um yeah learning a new language um I really liked it too um but it's also very difficult you it, need to invest yeah it, yeah you need it's to like invest a lot to of time yeah, yeah. So you're trying to learn uh, Mandarin Chinese or Cantonese? No, uh, uh, I should learn Mandarin, um, <laughs> but no, I'm learning Cantonese and I'm just I learning see. like writing. I, I right. can't speak actually. Right, mm -hmm. nice, nice. Okay, well, good luck with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, thank, and thanks for, thanks for the, the intro. So now um, it would be great if you can give us a brief um, uh, explanation of your, your training background and your disciplinary perspective um, and your research interest in general. Sure. So um, I went to, I have a background in kinesiology. I did my undergrad um, at Western, um, in, and I got a BA in kinesiology. And then I went on to do my master's in kinesiology, but focusing on uh, the historical and sociological perspectives of sport mega events. And particularly, I was really interested in how that impacted um, 
marginalized populations. Um, I took a year off to work in um, a nonprofit sports organization, reaching out to marginalized youth in Toronto. And then I decided that maybe nonprofit wasn't for me. So I decided to go back to school and I came here to Queens and I enrolled in the health promotion um, program because one thing I really enjoyed about my master's was trying to understand why, um, why people experience certain health outcomes or why people experience or how people get into um, spaces of marginalization. Um, so that is a little bit about myself. Uh, specifically, I have a background. It's really, really quite varied, but I would consider myself to be a social scientist. And my view and my take on health promotion is really colored by literature um, from geography, from sociology, and from history. And I really think, for me, health, first and foremost, even though it is... Um, it is sort of about wellness. It's also about um, what are some of those social surroundings that are, are impacting us and our health. And um, I think my research interests, as I have already prefaced, uh, prefaced about my background, um, are really derived from my childhood experiences, actually. My, as I stated, my parents are refugees here to Canada and when I was growing up we had a pretty precarious um, living situation and it was actually really tough we had a really precarious housing situation and um, when my uh, parents divorced I, I just lived with my mom and uh, I, I our living situation did not improve and in 2013 actually uh, she ended up having cancer. And all of this is to say that I saw really close up um, the social determinants of health mm -hmm. un unfolding in my life. And I didn't know it at that time, but I think, yeah, overworking, um, not having good job prospects, not having really good food security, like all of these things impact one's health. And so my research interests though they are pretty vast, they're really surrounding this question of marginalization. They're surrounding a question of justice and how we can get to a space of equity for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's a little bit about me and my research interests. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, actually, uh, in our previous topic, the one of our previous topics, or around social determinants of health when we were talking mm -hmm. about social epidemiology. So we talked about, you know, race, gender, uh, food insecurity, and all those social issues that, that people experience that affects their health. So it is it is really great to hear that um, from, from a personal perspective. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so let's moving on to the most important part of this okay. interview. So can you tell us about the lecture topic? So it's about critical health promotion and you briefly mentioned about what that is. So it's justice uh, oriented and it's trying to tackle um, the root causes of, you know, you know people's health and, and the, the causes that affects people's health in a negative way. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about that and also how, um, yeah, just that. Okay, I'll try my best. Um, 
For me, critical health promotion is really about um, thinking about how the social context and also political context uh, to which a person is embedded in really can impact their access um, and their ability to, um, and the ways that they experience health or receive help to, to having good health and, and the ways that it impacts quality of life. Um, and so today I actually wanted to talk a little bit about um, an area of expertise that I'm growing in and an area of interest that really, really has grabbed my heart over the past few years um, in order to explain what this might mean. So um, as viewers has prob have probably gathered, I don't have a background in epidemiology. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the context and then how an epidemiological lens could be applied. And so um, a little bit about my dissertation topic. I, um, in my dissertation, I talked about, um, my, my dissertation topic really revolves around uh, how people living in informal settlements, also called favelas in Portuguese, um, have been experiencing housing insecurity and what are those implications on health? And so before I talk about that, I would think I need to situate what an informal settlement or favela is. So a favela, uh, the Portuguese word for in informal settlement, really is um, has three defining characteristics. Now, important to know that even though it has three defining characteristics, no two favelas are the same. So it would be widely unfair to take a look at two favelas and say, oh, they're the same. And that informal settlements are prototypes of one another. That's not true. Um, but there are three defining characteristics. The first one is that favelas are historically created by um, in precarious situations. So historically it has, it was created by migrants uh, or slaves or people simply who could not uh, afford to live in uh, formal housing. And uh, historically what has happened is that people would literally find a plot of land and they would build uh, on this space, literally using oftentimes crude uh, elements like stone, brick, um, mortar like whatever uh people could find uh, number two while favelas are pretty different they all generally lack some sort of a social or physical provision so many favelas do not have um, equal access to electricity uh, running water sanitation or government support and lastly almost all individuals living in favelas and but this is not all um do not have legal recognition uh, to their land. So they don't have title to their land. And so what has really been problematic about this is that as the land value in Rio de Janeiro, and that's the place that I, uh, I was living in and I was studying, uh, is increasing. Developers obviously want to develop and create new infrastructure. So what's happening is that um, people living in favelas who have no right to their land or legal right to their land are being evicted or face the, the threat of eviction on a daily basis. Um, now, so then historically, uh, the policies and actions towards favela residents have been rooted in racism, in sexism, 
and in classism. So favela residents today are predominantly black, low income, informal workers, uh, like uneducated, and it was for a really, really long time, a stigmatized space. It still is. And many favelas are also located in what scholars call urban peripheries. So if you've ever seen a map of Rio, you'll see that it's actually um, really hilly. Like, mm -hmm. and a lot of favelas, um, in a lot of pictures of favelas, you'll see that houses are kind of stacked on top of one another like that. And mm -hmm. it's because they're on a hill. A lot mm -hmm. of times they are also located in really environmentally sort of unsound places. So I've been to a favela which was created 50 years ago from what was a garbage dump. So it's really these spaces that are sort of not accessible, um, not really uh, hygienic in, in sort of a formal sense. And so all of this is to say these racist policies, sort of the ra racialized view of favela residents, as well as the geographical isol isolation has not been conducive to providing for the government to provide easy access to healthcare for these people. So mm -hmm. all of this is to say that it's, yeah, it's a challenge for people in favelas to um to receive healthcare, and so even historically and even today like there are lots of communities that don't have fresh running water a lot of communities that don't have um regular trash disposal and um a lot of places don't even have like easy access to supermarkets and so there's a lot of actually um epidemi uh, epidemiological studies about food insecurity in mm -hmm. favelas and uh how it has um, like geographical isolation has led to um, a higher reliance on processed food and uh, leading to obesity and diabetes and whatnot. And there was actually a really interesting article in the New York Times that was talking about how Nestle, do you know Nestle? Like the, yeah, the company, corporation, corporation. Yeah. yeah. Like um, they hired door-to-door -door vendors and literally they have like a, a cart full of junk food to sell this food in favelas because they knew that access was an issue like access mm -hmm. to fresh fruits and vegetables so you all of this to say is that issues to like um related to good access to fruits vegetables and also to healthcare is historically been a social issue and historically has been imbued in racism and in corporate greed. Mm -hmm. um, and so with this context, so happy, um, <laughs> there has been a really interesting development lately in which, um, so as I said, like historically favela residents have had really super high um, mortality rate, child mortality rate, and also like low life expectancy. Um, and uh, in July, there was a st official statistics that came out uh, reporting an extraordinarily low number of cases coming from favelas. Like it's so, it was so weird because historically there has just been a lot of health issues related to people there because of issues related to access and food and housing insecurity. Um, but for an example, in July, in one of Rio's biggest favelas of over 70,000 residents, and like imagine it's the residents in the houses like this. Mm -hmm. um, 
Official statistics counted that there were only 12 COVID infections and five deaths in the, in the whole community of 70,000 people, which is really, really hard to believe because, as we know, Brazil is actually one of the most heavy hit countries in mm-hmm. all of the, the worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and it's also really interesting to keep in mind that actually when you have houses that are so close together, because the mm-hmm. houses are often um, created by hand, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they're also not created to code. There is a lot of overcrowding in favelas. So mm-hmm. not only um, not only are people, I mean, is it questionable, but like if you look at a favela, like how are people able to practice physical distancing like Mm -hmm. it is so different the dynamic and also with people living paycheck to paycheck like Mm -hmm. how are people being able to afford um hand sanitizer and masks and on a daily basis so but for me while these statistics are laughable they're also not unexpected because historically the census has never been able to uh, accurately capture how many people live in favelas themselves. Right. And so you'll have an official count, which is actually substantially lower than some of the counts that NGOs and favela residents do themselves. Mm-hmm. And so um, an infectionist at, a, at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro argued that while many of these deaths were registered, they were not identified Mm-hmm. To these residents right and so it altered it heavily altered the statistics of favela related cases like COVID mm-hmm. and for me like this hits me hard in a critical sense because one like not be, not identifying an individual for me means to erase all of what that person is like um, and reduce them to just a person who died. Um, but number two, it's also significant because it impacts the way public health departments will in the future distribute resources and roll out efforts uh, to different parts of the city, right? So if they see that the statistics are low in favelas, why would they choose to distribute masks and um, uh, sanitizer to those spaces? But it just doesn't make sense because historically, um, favela residents are are the most vulnerable when it comes to to health and so I think having this case study in mind we need to think really really critically about what a solution for COVID-19 is in those spaces so we think about the vaccine as a solution but yes it is it's a biomedical solution but when you transport it to that space when there's issues with overcrowding lack of education around how to sanitize um, um, and in particular it's a really really close social culture we need to think about um, the implications of of what we think is a good public health um, uh, solution and so Mm -hmm. for me Think, thinking about this case, critical health promotion means to take into account all these different social, historical, political implications and context when thinking about why do people die? Why do people get infected? And in particular, those who are silenced, right? What does mm-hmm. it mean when some people are not captured under statistics? What does it mean for communities? 
What does it mean for a person living in a stigmatized community? And what does it mean for people who share similar race, similar class, similar um, income? Um, all, all these things. So mm -hmm. you can ask me questions. I just need to <laughs> get that off my chest. That's great. Um, yeah, actually, I have a few questions listening yeah. to you. And the information is so interesting. Um, and I remember I didn't go to the conference, but back in like three years ago, there was a big conference um, in Rio and mm. people went there and they all, all everything that they, that they talk about was that they are so struck by apparent inequality that exists in the city. They can just see that there's a big wall in between um, people who are privileged and not privileged. And like you said, the, like you described the, the living situations that are not, you know, unacceptable. They're not acceptable, right? So um, that's very interesting. And actually when I went to Thailand, um, I saw a similar situation. So there was a big, really fancy conference center that we were all in. And somehow we got into the other side by accident because we got lost and we couldn't. <laughs> And there was a big wall, actually, like mm. physical wall. And it was so hard to get out of that side. Mm. And all I could see was just crowded housing with just people um, with, you know, very distinct smell and just people um, being, you know, apparently looking uh, poor, right? So, you know, all these things... Um, when you travel as as a you know person from the from the country like Canada and you know person uh, with with the with um, my like my I am privileged right in, in our society so as a person who has that privilege it's really hard to see um, those differences and it's really hard to take right mm -hmm. so um, as I listen to you. Um, that really struck me. But at the same time, you said that from the epidemiological perspective, you said that the confirmed cases were only 12 and COVID-19 related death was five. Um, so that really doesn't make sense. But what's interesting is that then the mortality rate due to COVID-19 is over 40% mm. in that mm -hmm. population based on those numbers, right? So, whereas in Canada, prob like I'm not sure in, in Brazil, but in most countries, it's the, the COVID-19 related mortality is lower than 1%. So given, <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. given that it's like 40 times higher in, in yeah. the population in, in Fabaro, right? I, so, I think so. I, I think, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think there's several in interesting points to make about that. So, Number one is that reporting from the um, perspective of a mm -hmm. favela resident is a stigmatizing thing. So mm -hmm. you think about it, a, a, a majority of people who work in the favela work in some sort of informal economy. So that means mm -hmm. like probably like um, selling goods by the, by, by the beach or selling goods just walking along the beach. That's a sort mm -hmm. of informal economy. But sometimes they get gigs in formal economies, like cleaning for uh, mm -hmm. a club or like working as a waiter or something like that. In those uh, situations, there has been reports that a lot of people are afraid to 
report that they have COVID because they don't want to lose their jobs. And this is something really, really important that I want to say is that when we think about COVID, just in our, yeah, like in our privileged lives, we just think I don't want to get that infection because I don't want to die. But in favela spaces, there are more than one way to die. You can die from COVID, but even if you have the vaccine, you can die of poverty. And this Mm -hmm. is a real reality for people who don't have um, stable jobs. And and a lot of people are like that. And it's not to look down, but it's to be sensitive to the reality that um, that death can happen in more than one way. And in Mm -hmm. in that also, I I like like to push our, our understanding of health, right? It's not just about you know, just because I don't have disease doesn't mean I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm healthy. Like not having access to food, not having access to wa- running water, that impacts health. And it mm-hmm. seems to be quite indirect, but it is true. And so when people don't have access to running water, part of their income has to come out from buying bottled water, things like that, that we have to really, really think about when it comes to these sort of communities being hit by COVID. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe for them, COVID-19 is not, thing, it's not something special because their health is always under the threat. They could, you know, just die from something else any, yeah. any day, any moment. Like, um, that's a really good point. Like, crime is a real thing. And crime related to mortality is, like, very high in um in favelas and as a result actually in favelas child mortality is five times higher than outside of the favelas for a variety of different reasons it could be for respiratory problems which does happen because sometimes these spaces are in environmentally um unsound like risky places but Mm -hmm. a lot of it is also crime that people watch out for so if it's like so you're totally right like there Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things to to think about like COVID is not end all be all for people who are trying to, you know, put something on their table to, mm-hmm. to eat or to provide for their family. And oh, another thing I want to say about the 40% is that the trend, because um, uh, the trend was that there was a 40% mortality rate, like thinking about it, because people would not go to the hospital unless they were absolutely close to death. Mm-hmm. So that was probably why that was recorded versus a lot of people um, like under reporting for people who contracted but did not become hospitalized right yeah yeah and also before we moving on to the next next question um so people who live in favela do they have like birth certificate like they get registered as a citizen um or some of them don't they generally everybody does have a birth certificate, but okay. uh, not everybody has title. So a lot of times I've met a few people, like young people especially, who's come from pretty rural Brazil to try to make a living in Rio and mm-hmm. they end up living in favelas. So that sort of a history does not follow them. Their birth certificate would say their hometown, but then um, like their residence in a favela would not be recorded. I see. Yeah. So they are basically homeless in Leo based on the paper. Yeah, legally, like they don't have a a place of residence. And also in a lot of favelas, there are no uh, officially registered street names. Very, very rarely. 
are they registered? So how, when I was in Rio, how I learned to get somewhere was looking at, okay, there's a gas station here and I know one block down, there's going to be a hotel there. And then one block down, there's going to be a bridge. I have to cross the bridge. I'll walk through a garden and then I'll get to like a huge wall and I have to knock the door and then inside is the favela. So a lot of times how I got to places was through recognition. And I think that's mm -hmm. how a lot of people do it as well. Like, because it's not recognized by the city at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Um, okay, so thanks for sharing that. And now moving on to our next um, topic. So you provided the research exhibit. Um, those are the, the, the two articles and it's, it's, they are posted or they're, they're um, included in the course outline. So can you tell us, uh, on why you already explained a little bit, but can you tell us why you chose the topic and, and what's the significance of it? Sure, so um, as you may or may not be looking at right now, there, I'm choosing to exhibit the Favela's Unified Dashboard on Beyond Watch. So in the previous question, I talked about how there is severe underreporting for some of the huge, like biggest favelas in Rio. And so, um, these two articles are articles written in English by a um, oh, like by NGO that I worked with called Rio on Watch. Rio on Watch does a lot of really fantastic work on favela reporting. And one of the biggest things that they do, other than creating research, is that they um, they translate stuff from Portuguese to English. So all reports that are um, related to favelas and um, all written things. And so they actually have a series called Coronavirus Watch and they, um, they are basically translating everything related to favelas. And so why did I choose this exhibit? So ideally for social issues, which I'm counting this as a social issue, like with regards to um, the favelas and the COVID situation, you would like the government to create interventions and policies to help individuals. This is generally what we expect. But historically, um, policies have not only failed this population, it has served to exacerbate um, the inequity around health and housing. And so in my research, in my personal research, I have found that favela residents and academics are doing, are actually combining activism and research together to force governments to get things done. And so this um, Favela's Unified Dashboard is exactly what that is. It's a collaboration between 20 community collectives, organizations, initiatives, and universities to create um, a space for robust COVID-19 reporting in favelas. And it's also a tool to allow the public to declare their own cases in a safe way. And so I think for me, the next frontier of healthcare reform is not with the government, it's not with researchers themselves. I think it's in activism and I think it's in collaborative effort. And I think for me, this is what, um, this is the future of critical health um, studies. And I, I, I think also this is the root of how critical epidemiology came to be in Latin America, that there was a huge um, um, activism sort of movement to push health reform because people are realizing that it's not just about numbers are reporting. People 
like there are implications for people and that's why health reform is important. And so for me, I, I think this field of study is really, really significant. It's in the business, I hate using the word business, but it's in the works to change lives in partnership with people who are most affected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, thanks, for, thanks for sharing that insight. I think that's awesome. So you mentioned that, you know, that's, there's a critical epidemiology and and this can be something um this can be a really good example of what critical epidemiology can contribute to in these uh collective efforts read by um activists who are actually doing the work in the field so um you know this class is epidemiology and you know some of the students will become epidemiologists so do you have any suggestions to them in terms of um you know what what they can do to be more um to do more meaningful work mm. when they when they after they graduate yeah great question so i see this way less in canada but i see this a lot in brazil because simply because number one governments do not listen to favela residents i think governments do not think that they're human like it's evidence in their actions and stuff and so what um what academics are doing is that they're partnering with um they're partnering with people on the ground to make evidence to make make oh oh like sorry robust evidence to convince Mm -hmm. governments and force governments to to act and so this has been a long um, long time tactic of governments saying you're uneducated to favela residents, you don't know what you're saying, you're not actually experiencing the things that you're experiencing. And what epidemiologists are doing, and what other like urban planners and lawyers and engineers are doing, are they're, they're generating evidence to give people voice and saying, no, this is not true. Like, take a look at the statistics, take a look at, um, take a look at what has happened in the past historically this has happened to these people. And in a lot of cases, these collaborations have actually, um, is actually what has pushed reform, housing reform, health reform, education reform in Brazil. And it is even more so relevant today uh, within sort of our increasingly right-wing governments that are taking over the world. Like evidence is key. So it's not just about the activism. I think there is a huge need to generate robust evidence but the the key point is are we listening to the people who can actually provide us with the expertise are we listening to and working with people who have on the ground knowledge and I think this is what is hugely missing in our today's academic world uh, even myself as a researcher am I listening to people who are actually affected or am I just looking at some random literature mm-hmm. um, and so I think this is the relevance of of yeah, students who want to become or have a career in epidemiology, like your contributions are important, but it's time to get out of that box, that traditional way of looking at things and data and, and to consider other things as data and to, and to work with people. I think mm-hmm. this is the future, I think. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really great suggestion. So be political. Yes work for um, those um, who are in, in vulnerable situations, listen to them and think about the research that you can do, think about the evidence that you can produce to 
really um, achieve health equity, mm-hmm. where all people can can be healthy and have access to, you know, clean water, just basic needs, human basic needs, clean water, shelter, um, stable income, um, access to healthcare, mm-hmm. etc. I just want to add, like, particularly in the context of Brazil and in favelas, there is power in being educated. And it sucks to say, but it is true. And Mm -hmm. we can use that voice to advocate and to help others. Or we can continue to be stuck in our same old ways and and not progress. But like, Mm -hmm. super, super important to say that you have power and moving forward, like, how are you going to... um, how are you going to use this power equitably if you are interested in health equity? This is like the mm-hmm. huge question because it mm-hmm. begins with us. It's not just about data. It begins mm-hmm. with how we're collecting data, how we're using data mm-hmm. and how we are seeing people unlike ourselves and, and, and the ways that we want to help. Mm-hmm. And like just another thing to add is that evidence will always be useful currency. Like, mm-hmm. it just depends how you're going to spend it, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, this became a very political speech, but it's true. I think health is uh, political and yeah. research is political, so. Yeah, I think it's great. And I, it's thanks for such an empowering message to, to our student. I think, uh, yeah, this is, this is great. So, yeah, thanks for coming in today um, and t- talk to us. And, and, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. Bye. Is that it?